Hi guys, it's Annie McDonald, physio and strength and conditioning coach, and welcome to the Informed Performance Podcast. On today's show, I have Sergio Fonseca, a physiotherapist who is a professor at the Federal University Minas Gerais and is also the editor-in-chief for the Brazilian Journal of Physiotherapy. This episode is a very thought-provoking and philosophically stimulating conversation, thanks to Sergio's work, but also his ability to broadly explain the behaviour of systems and problem-solving as it relates to performance and sports medicine. So I suggest you have a coffee in your hand and a pen and paper at the ready for this one. This episode has been sponsored by Vald Performance, makers of the Force Frame Strength Testing System. The Force Frame is a powerful solution for quickly and accurately testing isometric strength and imbalances in athletes. But in addition to testing athletes, it can also be used to maintain and improve strength, offering over 130 isometric training protocols. It's a portable and easy-to-use system designed to ensure every measurement can be collected accurately and reliably time after time. To learn more about the Force Frame, visit our sponsor, volperformance.com. But without further ado, let's get into today's conversation between myself, Andy McDonald, and Sergio Fonseca. Sergio, welcome to the show. Thanks for coming on. How are you today, and uh, where are you at this time of recording? Okay, I'm, I'm Belo Horizonte. It's a city in south, southeast Brazil. Uh, a very warm weather right now. I'm quite fine. Thank you. And I've had some really interesting um, conversations on the podcast around varying topics like injury prediction, uh, risk analysis, injury mitigation, and, and of course, rehab. Inevitably, we gravitate to what people do and how they do it because, uh, you know, we want to inspire ideas for what we can change or improve in our own settings. Uh, and we like the sort of ideas that we can steal, I think, because it um, it expends the least amount of mental energy sometimes. Um, your publications and work are incredibly pragmatic and also provide so much philosophical context or, or insight into what is ultimately problem-solving systems. Um, this conversation could get uh, academic or heavily philosophical pretty fast. So I'd like to warm both the listeners up and, and more, more importantly, I'd like to warm myself up into that. Um, to get us up to speed, can we talk about your background? And I think we can probably set the foundation there. Okay. I'm a physical therapist. Uh, I graduated from the Federal University of Minas Gerais a long time ago, uh, 1986. And then I went to Canada. I spent two years there uh, doing my master's degree with uh, David McGee at the uh, University of Alberta. Went back to Brazil and I... Um, I started work at the Federal University after some time. Went back to U.S. at this time at, at Boston University. I got my doctorate degree with uh, Ken Holt. Um, back to Brazil, worked for some time, and then I went to Connecticut at the CESPA, at the Center for the Ecological Studies of Perception Action with Michael Turvey. And now I'm back to Brazil. So that's basically what I did. And, you know, one of the things I'm curious, you're, you're from a clinical background and obviously you've got an extensive um, academic background as well. I, you know, I guess when you started your career or when you kind of set out on this path where you've, where you've moved a few times, you know, have, has there been sort of like an end goal or like is there certain things that you're trying to discover academically, you know, or, or sort of strive towards? Yeah. Um, 
I started as a clinician. Uh, my master's degree was very applied with David McGee, so uh, a physical therapist. So when, when I came back to Brazil and started to work, basically my main interests were, were clinical. And um, when I went back to U.S. Uh, at Boston University, I was introduced to a new way of thinking. So basically I was introduced to the ideas of dynamical systems approach and uh, ecological approach, perception action. So this made a huge difference in the way I was thinking before. So it actually brought this philosophical position to my clinical background. So when I went back to Brazil and started to work uh, as a professor and a clinician, because at the university I was actually teaching uh, students in, in the clinics, um, I had the opportunity to, to link both, like to, to be a clinician and a scientist at the same time. And that made, um, create the opportunity to, to think about uh, the intervention uh, that I was actually planning. And this philosophical way of thinking was actually very important in terms of um, giving me uh, new ways of thinking and let me go out of the, the black box that sometimes the clinical arena can be. So it was just like a, a, a big addition to my arsenal of um, uh, clinical skills. So It's interesting you say that because I think, um, you know, being a clinician myself, the uh, the education for being a clinician is very um, methodical, obviously, so that it can be thorough and safe and and effective. But I actually I remember I went to a job interview a few years ago, and somebody said, "You know, what's your philosophy?" And I think it's uh, unless you've been asked that question, like you know, I had been at the time, it's it can be quite a hard question to answer. So I find it very interesting that you've delved into the the philosophical side of it because I think we. We do focus on the science, and rightly so at times, but I, f I do think that we don't necessarily question um, how do we structure that science and information into a philosophy a lot of the time. That's right. So in my case, I started as a clinician, and I became a movement scientist. So uh, it, it's, it's, it's just like uh, you open up a window, and you can face the same problem with different uh, ways of seeing, analyzing it. So... Uh, as I told you before, it's just giving tools to think about what you do. So science is, is crucial uh, and allow you actually to, to, to improve a lot. So clinical skills are very important, but being able to think about what you're doing is essential. Yeah. And, and I want this conversation to be thought provoking and I, and I know it will be. Um, and I want it to be that way to a number of professionals. So not just kind of physios and clinicians, but, but also um, sports scientists, strength and conditioning coaches and any other supportive personnel that work with athletes. Um, I want to talk about the problems or, or kind of probe you maybe on uh, some of the questions or practical problems that you um, experienced that maybe triggered some of your um, academic and uh, sort of published work and articles? Um, so I started in the um, musculoskeletal physical therapy, uh, working with uh, basically sports. So that was my, uh, let's say, my main skills in terms of physical therapy. So um, very fast, you, you started learning that um, a lot of things that people would uh, describe as the best way to treat or to focus wasn't actually for all. So you 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 understand that uh, 
um, there is no way to treat uh, a disease. You can treat always people. And, and that um, is very aligned with uh, the complexity thinking that I was introduced uh, at Boston University and, and later on at the um, University of Connecticut. So adding uh, this complexity uh, way of uh, the, 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 the theory of complexity uh, to my uh, clinical skills was essential and allowed me to move out of the box. So uh, I, I had questions that probably everyone has, but I had actually ways of thinking about those questions in, in a different way. So um, how to uh, offer solutions for the problems that, that, I, uh, that I was actually facing uh, with my patients or my students treating patients. That was basically... Uh, my main task at the university hmm. and something myself and uh, a previous guest and friend uh, alan hazlett discussed was that we when he came on the show is that we sometimes get stuck thinking um overly simplistic perhaps and you know an example of that could be you know does uh, a single variable lead to a change or a specific outcome and then if it doesn't we quite often throw the baby out of the bathwater and dismiss whether that variable has any relationship in the context of that system. Um, you know, can you maybe walk me and the listeners through with this in mind, reductionism to complexity theory? And I guess, you know, not everybody will have heard of or be able to define those terms. So could you kind of explain what they are? And I think that might be a good place to set the scene, uh, going a bit more academic on it. Very good. Um, if you, if you think the way, um, most people approach science is always thinking that science will provide the, provide you the tools to answer questions in a causal relationship, like always assuming that for any problem, there's a single cause. And in science, in some ways, uh, makes you always look for that, to look for the causal, causal relationships that can... Um, solve any kind of problem that you, you can bring on, okay? Um, the problem is that it only works when the, the link between cause and effect is very close. Uh, only simple systems or sometimes complicated systems can allow you to make this uh, cause of the establishment of, of, of a single cause to a problem. But in nature, most of the things that we face are complex. And complexity is quite different from uh, complicated, for example. So basically the way science goes about is to reduce a problem to its elements and then think, think that if you put this, those elements together, you can go back to the problem. So that, that's the, the nature of this reductionism approach. You, it's, it's the idea that you can break up a system in, into parts and when you put the parts together, you have the system back. So you reduce the problem to its parts. And it only works in um, simple systems, but it doesn't work uh, in most of the problems that we face uh, in our society, for example. So when you have to, we have to understand the differences between simple problems or simple systems, complicated problems or complicated systems, and complex systems and problems. And unfortunately, a lot of times we are faced with complex problems or complex phenomena. And that's the problem because 
we use we use the same tools, the scientific tools that were developed to answer um, problems that uh, are, are simple or, or, or complicated at most. So um, that that's the, the the main issue here. Uh, we we're using an approach that's not um, let's say um, appropriated to answer the questions that sometimes we need to pose. And complexity is, is, is basically uh, understand that um, the parts, are, the sum of the parts are different from the whole. So the whole cannot be actually uh, being um, constructed, basic, basically putting the parts together. So you have to think differently. So a lot of the approaches that we established uh, along uh, of the, the last centuries that a mechanistic approach they're not going to solve our problems, and we have to escape from that. I don't know if I'm, I was clear. If, if I'm, if you need to expand something, let me know. No, that makes complete sense. Um, you know, one of the I think you know more often than not, what we do practically inspires them. What we do academically, and, and I guess in your case, philosophically, um, to go kind of full circle. And, and this could be a bit of a mean question, so I apologize. You've you know, you've delved into the philosophy of how we approach these uh, problems and think about them. You know, I don't know whether you you still do see patients, um, but it, or and if you if you don't, then if you were to see patients again in that context, would it change the way that you um, you know maybe speak to a patient or assess them and uh, and diagnose them? How how would yeah. this kind of philosophy change you in a practical sense now? So uh, I, I'm going to give you a simple example that may, will make clear to your listeners. Basically, one of the characteristics of complexity is something called equifinality. Equifinality. So uh, you can reach the same outcome by different means. Okay? So if you think in terms of uh, any, any kind of clinical condition, okay, um, we we were thought for a long time that uh, this clinical condition is caused by um, a certain type of let's say cause, okay, X. And in fact, this same problem it could be caused by different ways. Let, let me give an example. If you look, for example, uh, a person that comes to you with um, a public public. A problem, let's say in, in the, this synthesitis, for example, or osteitis pubics. Uh, and um, a lot of time you think that uh, the cause of that problem is related basically to the tissue that you're treating. But the same, the same problem, the same medical condition can be caused by, for example, a lack of internal rotation uh, of your hip could be caused by an efficient uh, mechanism of myofascial force transmission from your trunk to the lower legs could be caused by overpronation that doesn't allow you to dissipate energy during running or could be caused by supination at heel contact on the ground that allow makes your, your system too stiff to dissipate energy. So at first you have like at, at least four different problems that can actually be linked together. So it's not just one cause, are several causes that combine together in order to produce uh, the pathological condition that you're facing. So how you go about it? Like how, how can you, 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 you 
go there and say, okay, I'm going to treat this patient this way without actually being able to assess the patient and understand the underlying possible causes that together may lead to the problem that the patient is bringing you. So I have a classical case of equifinality, many ways to lead to the same outcome. So when I have something like this, I have to step up, step out and think, okay, I cannot ask the question about the pathology anymore, how I would treat the pathology. Because there's no way, actually, that I will find a proper way to treat that pathology because that same pathology can be caused by same, uh, several different mechanisms. So the only way to be successful in a clinical setting is actually move out from the pathology with the medical approach and go back to the patient and use a clinical reasoning to, to, to try to understand uh, what the patient brings to the problem. But I have to, to know a lot about the movement, a lot about the body, the mechanics of the body, the biomechanics, in order to make the relationships that may lead to cause. To the cause, cause. So I, you, I will only be able to define my treatment after assessment, not by being based on uh, a diagnosis given by a doctor or any, uh, any person. So the disease is, is much less important than actually the problem or the patient and what the patient, patient brings to the, uh, to the situation that I'm assessing there. So it, it's an example uh, of this kind of complex thinking that allow me to move away from uh, the disease approach and think about the patient um, in terms of um, many possibilities that I can actually assess, use my clinical reasoning in order to define the proper approach, the proper treatment to the subject. With, you know, what, what, I'm, what I'm curious about, and maybe this will be a, a thought in other listeners' minds, uh, how do you kind of, um, with that in mind, how do you navigate this kind of um, dichotomy where, you know, some people will be very, N equals one in the way that they assess and manage patients. And then other people will, and not that these two things are completely exclusive, but some yep. people will go the other way and they, they treat problems on more of a sort of societal and statistically powered way. How do you navigate that kind of individual versus sometimes evidence-based when the two things can occasionally compete a little bit? For me, it's, it's, uh, there, there are different questions. If I'm, I'm to establish some um, policy in terms of, um, of the society, how, 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 how would I, I would minimize mistreating the patient, okay? So let's say I'm not a specialist and I need some guidelines in order to uh, decrease the chance of my mistakes, okay? So I need uh, this information about evidence, evidence-based and sometimes based on the condition that the patient brings, because uh, maybe I'm not qualified in, to make the, the proper clinical reason to understand what's going on to the, my, uh, with my patient. So uh, evidence is crucial. I have to factor in any kind of evidence when I analyze the patient, but guidelines and, and evidence are fundamental when I look in terms of population and I'm not a specialist in the case that I'm facing 
in the clinic. On the other hand, okay, uh, taking into account uh, what the evidence says, I should be able to uh, use my knowledge, okay, and knowledge includes evidence. I have to, to make this clear. Use my knowledge to parse out what, what's going on with my patient, not uh, focusing only on the disease, but looking to the many possible causal relationships that could lead to the problem. So uh, if I step out um, out of my, my, my uh, comfort zone in terms of uh, 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 dealing with uh, uh, a patient, what I am going to do is to fall back to the evidence and guidelines to minimize my mistakes. But if, if, if I'm uh, more comfortable in terms of being able to assess, analyze, understand the problem because I have more knowledge in order to solve that question, I, I'll be able to um, use my skills in order to make this clinical reasoning to find out what would be the best way to treat that patient regardless of the evidence that's out there. And that's the problem uh, that we see sometimes because uh, it's, it's interesting to see that if we, if we go back to the, to, um, the evidence, evidence that's out there, it, it's kind of scary because uh, most of the time uh, we don't have strong evidence that, uh, let's say, a given treatment works. Okay, sometimes we don't have evidence that it works or, or, or it doesn't work. Okay, so it, it's kind of uh, quite strange because there's no better approach than the other or both approaches are bad or equally good when in fact it's not about a, the approach A or B. It's about what the patient needs. So if I have the skills to, to make a proper assessment, if I have the knowledge to put the dots together we understand what that subject needs, I can actually come up with a treatment for the patient regardless of the disease that's out there. It's, it's quite interesting that sometimes you can treat two patients with a different diagnosis in the same way, or sometimes treat two patients with the same diagnosis with, in different ways as well. So it, it's, it's, it's so funny to see that in, in, uh, in reality, uh, we're not stuck, actually, uh, in terms of treating only uh, the, uh, the disease. But, but this is a quite uh, regular way of uh, practitioners does, like when they use their experience to find out some kind of um, what I call um, regularities that is is related to a given pattern or a profile that needs a specific focus or treatment. I don't know if it's clear for you, but uh, if, if, if you feel that that's, that's anything strange uh, in terms of what I said, just let me know and we can um, explain a little bit better. No, I, th I think you um, you articulated that very well. And I think it makes me, you know, the thing that sort of sprung to mind for me was that um, I think sometimes in terms of jargon, we say patient centered as uh, I think sometimes too much as a value 
when mm-hmm. actually it's also the way that you consider the problem or the you know the issue that the patient is seeing you for. That that makes sense because as we we know that uh, the patient is the focus of our profession and in terms of what we we should be uh, doing, but. The problem is when it, it just become, becomes, a, a, let's say, a, 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 let's say, a, 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 just words like a jargon in the area. Uh, put the, the patient first, but it's not put the patient first. It's to be able to think that assessment drives treatment. An assessment of the patient that drives treatment, not assessment of the disease. And that's a medical model, okay? When, when, when I assess my patient to say, you have pathology B, pathology C, it does not tell me how to treat the patient. It just tells me what the patient has. So if I want to treat the patient, if I want to go to this uh, patient-centered approach, I have to assess the patient, its weaknesses and its strong points understand the relationship of these uh, uh, changes in terms of the complaints that the patient have and treat things that I can modify in my patient. Uh, Treat what the the assessment um, showed me that I need to work on the patient. So the patient first, it's it's based, the patient-centered is to being able to assess the patient not assess the patient for uh, in, in, in the search of a diagnosis of yeah, the, the medical condition. And something I enjoyed reading within your sports injury forecasting and complexity, um, a synergistic approach uh, paper was not surprisingly given the title about synergetics. And I think this will likely tease out some, some maybe some practical examples around uh, athlete monitoring, as an example, mm-hmm. which a lot of the audience will be able to relate to. To kind of get onto that, would you be able to explain uh, synergetics, kind of what they are and, and how does it relate? Okay. Okay. So, uh, synergetics is um, a multidisciplinary approach to uh, complex systems. So it's basically uh, the physics, applying the physics of uh, self organized systems to try to understand uh, its changes over time. So if you have a a, a complex system, sometimes you don't have access to everything that um, happened before with the system. In the system, I I mean, even a patient or uh, a a sports team or whatever, like any kind of system. Sometimes you don't have enough information to understand from where the system comes to where it goes. So you, you don't have the full story or full assessment of in terms of all the variables that you need in order to understand the system. So how, how can you go about that? Like how, how can you actually, let's say, establish some kind of approach that will, let's say, prevent injury or predict the injury in, the, in that system uh, if you don't know enough? Um, that, that, that's the main issue here. So if, if, if the system um, is a complex one with history, um, dependence uh, in, in terms of many scales, in terms of times and, 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 uh, and uh, spaces, and it's almost impossible for me to make one assessment and say, 
okay, this will happen. So basically, prediction, let's say injury prediction, is uh, at maximum an educated guess, okay? That, that's, that's the truth because we're dealing with complex systems. So in order to solve that problem, we have to bring the techniques usage deal with complex systems. So instead of using correlations uh, or nonlinear measures of associations or even tests of difference that the classical statistics approach, you have to move, move out of this and bring the tools uh, that physics use to study complex systems. And synergetics is one of those areas that deals with uh, complex systems, and they provide us with the tools to uh, try to map out what the system is doing and where it's the, the system can go. So synergetics is an, uh, uh, basically, uh, let's say, an, a physical approach uh, that we can use to study self-organization in complex systems. And self-organization is, as an example, could be injury in uh, a sports team, and that's a subject within a sports team, because what caused that, that injury to emerge as, uh, cannot be established in, in a single way. So, and, and if you think in terms of uh, different uh, individuals in the same team, how can you actually, um, based on a single assessment, for example, predict that an, an injury might happen? So instead of using the regular uh, methods that we've been using so far to predict and fail and fail again, because that's what we're doing out there, we're failing in predicting injuries, maybe it's time to move on and use the proper tools, the tools of uh, self-organizing systems to try to understand what, what will happen. And that's what Synergetic does. Uh, it provides me tools and language that I can actually use to study uh, a system and its evolution over time. Is there any kind of, um, th this could be a bit of a tough question, but I think it's, it's maybe the inevitable one. Is there any examples, say, in uh, professional sport, maybe with injuries, that you can apply that um, conceptually to in a more practical sense? You know, what is there a certain injury or um, is there certain metrics that we're looking at that um, don't answer the question? And, and what would those synergetic tools be uh, okay, in perfect. that same case? Very good. Uh, the first thing is, is, to, is to use the proper language of the um, of the approach. Okay, synergetic gives me uh, some, uh, uh, let's say, terms that can. Uh, I, I'll try to explain here. Okay, uh, but they're essential to understand what, what, how how we can go about to study a, a, an event. Okay, uh, the first step is to map out what the system is actually doing, okay? How, to, how can I describe the dynamics of that system, for example? Uh, a classical example that we, we, we see in sports is, for example, heart rate variability, okay? So you go there, you have uh, ECG recording of your heart behavior, and, and based on the bit intervals, you can compute, for example, uh, 
the entropy or even uh, this variability of the, the heart behavior. Uh, in the sense, that variable, what it does is actually to, to, to condense a lot of information about the health status of the cardiovascular system, okay? So it's not, it's not only about the variability, but it's about the, the overall behavior of that system. So we have here some kind of a global variable or a high-order variable that describes what the system is actually doing. It's kind of um, capturing a signature of the system. Okay. Once I have the signature of the system, in this case, for the um, cardiovascular system, the, the uh, heart, rate, heart rate variability, or for the uh, movement system in terms of using relative phase uh, between joints, for example. So I'm using a variable that captures the, uh, the global behavior uh, of, of that system that I'm studying, okay? So this variable uh, is called uh, order parameter, but an order parameter because what it does is to capture the order of the system, the signature, the behavior, the classical status of the system. So once I map this, once I am able to, 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 to find out the proper order parameter of the system, I'm in a position to start to follow that system, to understand its changes over time. Okay? Another, uh, another term that's essential to understand synergetics is a, is a variable called control parameter. Okay? The control parameter is what, is what changes that cause a change in the system. So, for example, when, you, um, uh, when you're running and you increase your speed, the speed could be some kind of control parameter that's imposing um, a greater demand to the system and its coordinated, coordinated pattern may have to change in order to, um, let's say, to adapt to that uh, scaling of speed, okay? So when you, when you start to walk and, and increase speed, the relative phase of your joints, for example, of the lower limb joints, will change from one kind of pattern to another, okay? It starts as an out-of-phase pattern. So if you look at your, your hip joint and your ankle joint, they move in different directions when you walk. And then you go to a treadmill and start to increase speed, increase speed. What you see is that close to the point that you stop walking and start to run, you became quite variable. Like it, it's kind of a, you, be, you become unstable. The variability of your movement pattern increases so much that suddenly you change, you reorganize and you assume a new pattern. And this pattern goes to running. And running can be described as an in-phase pattern from your hip and ankle. So both joints, they move together. So they flex together, they extend together, as opposed to walking one that one, when one extends, the other one flex. So I go there and I capture the state of the system. Then I manipulate the system. The system becomes unstable. And suddenly, in order to preserve the stability of the system, 
I have a standing champ. I have a critical transition. I move from one kind of organization to another. And that new pattern that we will merge is stable again. So I have an stable pattern, for example, walking. Then I increase the speed. I become unstable. And it's really hard to sustain a stable pattern. And suddenly, I jump to a new state. That's what that's running. And running is stable again. Okay, so it's it's a classical example of synergetics here. So I have a mapping of the system based on my order parameter. In this case, the relative phase uh, between hip and ankle. And then I have a scaling pattern. That's a scaling variable. That's speed. That is my control parameter. When this control parameter keeps increasing, it induces instability in the system. So the system becomes unstable. And then I have a critical transition. I have a phase transition. I move from one unstable pattern to a new stable pattern. Okay? So this is, uh, can be applied to injury, for example. Okay? Let's say that I can map my uh, athlete in terms of a variable that describes its, its status. So I can actually capture a signature of its states, its state. And then by training, by competing, by having all kinds of pressures placed on top of him, this uh, behavior that I actually mapped before starts to show instability, starts to show that, okay, the dynamics is changing. It becomes unstable. So when this behavior becomes unstable, I have two options. I can have uh, a sudden change that will lead to improvement in performance, or that sudden change can be, in fact, injury. So by mapping out what, what's going on in the system, by looking this, uh, control par- this order parameter and looking for its fluctuations or its instabilities, I can have a window uh, that will let me know that a change is about to happen. And that change is, could be an opportunity to take this athlete out of the competition, make a thorough assessment, and maybe understand what's going on with the individual. So it's, it's basically an example of how we can use uh, let's say, a natural law, a a global behavior uh, that I can find in several different systems, stock markets, internet, and apply, for example, in the human body and in behavior and in sports. So if I want to predict injury, the only way to go about in a complex system is to look its behavior, and when the behavior starts to change, qualitative, qualitative changes, I can start to think about, okay, something will happen to the system and then take the proper measures to mitigate the consequences of a possible injury. So it's, it's a, let's say, an analogy that we can use to understand uh, synergetics and how synergetics can, could be applied to sports, for example. You know, one of the questions that springs to mind when you say that is, uh, you know, 
when you you know how do you analyze those trends to see if the and this is probably context specific but how do you analyze those trends to see if the fluctuation is maybe in the injury context a risk versus a positive adaptation and i guess are you looking for um maybe those trends to be going you know one side of what the norm is or are you seeing those fluctuations bounce both both directions if that does that make sense yeah yeah i understand um we, we we are not, let's say, in terms of our behavior, we have uh, fluctuation. Naturally, we have fluctuations. We, we vary our behavior. Let's say if I look my movement pattern, for example, my movement pattern is uh, somewhat variable. Okay? So that's, that variability is part of what I am. So I have my own signature that can be uh, understood in terms of what I do, how I do, and how I fluctuate. Okay? So when I start to be stressed out, when, um, let's say, I have minimal consequences that can be added upon one another, let's say micro injuries, uh, pain, uh, not enough rest, lack of proper sleep, um, I have, uh, let's say, an increase in the demand but without the, the, let's say, the, the adequate changes in my capacity to deal with the increased demand, that will result in these instabilities, an increase of these instabilities. So if I see these instabilities to, to change very fast, okay, that is not a good sign. And contextually, you see that, okay, I can back go back to, to the subject and start to assess him. Okay, how you how are you sleeping? How how are you dealing with the pressure? Can I actually um, do some specific assessments of the musculoskeletal system in order to understand what's going on? So uh, it's it's kind of a window of opportunity to be, go back to the individual, assess again, and take uh, let's say based on the information that I collect the proper measure to understand if it's a positive change or it's, or it's a negative change. Normally, an increase in fluctuation that goes fast enough, it, it's telling me that something bad is going to happen. And People will no doubt be applying the topics of this conversation to their environments and their own problems that they, that they tackle and they face professionally. Before people go maybe to their whiteboards and try to map this out and apply it to their setting, I don't know whether you have done this as a consultant in the past or anything, but how, how do you kind of encourage people to um, break down what we're talking about in their own settings to kind of appraise the philosophies that they, they answer their questions or problems with? Okay, the first thing is to uh, understand that you have to assess frequently. Um, the big mistakes that I see in uh, sport settings is that they do a pre-season assessment, sometimes a mid-season assessment, and maybe an assessment at the end of the season. And they believe that that piece of information, cross-sectional, given, is going to tell you much about the system when, in fact, it doesn't. So I have to step away from this kind of approach, thinking that one assessment in time can give me enough information 
about the behavior for a complex system. I can't. It, it can't. So what I have to do is to uh, make a better use of the technology that we have today that allows me to collect data uh, in a much simpler way about my individual. I have like uh, GPSs. I have uh, inertial sensors that can be actually uh, put on the subject during training every day or during some kind of customized 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 section in the beginning of the day, for example, and start to assess the, the, the athlete every day. I have to increase the resolution of my assessment. So I'll have what's called a, a, um, a time series of the information that is important to me. So I'll be mapping the patient all the way, every day, and then I'll be able to capture any kind of change in behavior that's going on right there. So one of the things that we start to, to, to do in a different way is to move out. Actually, I, I'll rephrase that. To understand that the precision assessment has the potential to guide some measures related to the precision approach. So I do a precision assessment. I define, okay, how am I going to, to, to train my subject there? But that precision assessment is not going to tell me anything about what will happen during the season. So adding to that kind of approach, that's the traditional approach, I should be able to collect data in a finer resolution possible. If possible, every day and then start to map the behavior of my athlete, for example, and be able to capture those fluctuations and bad fluctuations that will arise during the season that may be pointing out to a change that may not be uh, in the right direction. So we have, in order to use this philosoph philosophical approach, that's the, the, the approach used in complex systems, we have to move out from our classical ways to, to do assessments. We have to introduce new ways to do this. And um, fortunately, we have today the technology to do that. You, 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 we have ways of uh, insert sensors uh, into clothes, uh, very small sensors uh, put uh, on, on, on the, the body segments that can actually map the behavior. We have ways to do things that we could not do before. So it's, it's time to use this kind of um, uh, technology in our favor and be able to map out the system uh, in a finer resolution possible to capture those fluctuations that will point out to the changes. You know, what you're talking about there um, perhaps slightly shifts our way of thinking about um, how often and when we collect certain metrics, definitely. Um, how much does it, you know, how much does that change the amount of data that we collect? Because we, I think in a practical sense, we are always tempted and would like to collect everything, but we're not always able from a logistics standpoint um, to collect everything that we would like. How much does what you're saying change the sort of volume of data? Oh, very good question. And that's why you need to understand the, the, the benefit of finding the proper order parameter. 
The order parameter is the variable that captures the global behavior of the system. In this variable, it's included all the other variables that normally we assess. So the behavior of this variable is actually the behavior of the system, is the signature of the system. It has the information that we need. So instead of going uh, every day, spend uh, hours looking for many, many variables, I can go there in five minutes, capture one variable that tells me everything about the system. Because what I'm doing actually is capture the signature of the behavior, not the details of it. So that, that's the rupture between this uh, mechanicist approach, this reductionist approach that tells us that I need to know the parts in order to understand the whole. Here is the opposite. The whole tells me about the parts, but the parts doesn't tell me about the whole. So the only way to actually to be successful in this approach is to have a global variable that is mapping out all, um, let's say, contributions of the elements of the system. It, 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 it's the opposite of the classical approach. Um, the whole actually makes pressure on the parts. The whole dictates what the parts should do, not the opposite. When we always thought in the mechanistic approach that once I understand the parts, I can tell the whole, not here. So if I map the proper variable, I just need that variable to understand the system. And to understand the system, I have to follow the dynamics. What's going on every day in that variable? And that then I'll, I'll know that, okay, the system is going through changes. And when I know that, then I can bring this, the subject out of the, 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 of the group and do my proper assessment. The assessment that's related to my profession, any kind of profession. And uh, then try to understand what's going on. Even like in a psychological way, physical way, social way, doesn't matter. That variable will reflect what's going on globally. Just, I guess, one kind of final question I've got for you. I mean, I could keep asking you, I could bug you with questions for days, but um, I'm <laughs> conscious of time. One final question is, you know, when you're trying to establish maybe what that, um, that whole piece would be um, rather than a reductionist segment, is there a tipping point where you can look at something that has too many elements or variability under it is there any is there kind of things that you would steer people away from where they'll they'll potentially find more questions than answers um it, the way i see it like that that is there's still a lot of work to be done okay uh what's the best uh, global variable out there that i can use to map um the history of the system um it's up to it, it, it's it's not set yet, okay. Uh, we have intuitions about what we should not do, um, but it's still like um, this is a, a new scientific program that should be done. Uh, that's something that we're doing right now, okay. Uh, but basically, uh, what we try to do, and that's uh, now. Uh, maybe some bias in terms of my background. So I'm, I'm, I'm trying to use the movement, okay, the movement pattern uh, as to index, okay, the global behavior of the system. So I have a belief, and that it's, it's not science right now, okay? I believe that 
if I want to look the proper global variable, that variable should reside in the movement because movement is the result of many systems. So if I look the movement and I capture this, that movement in a proper way, I can tell about what's going on. So there are a lot of uh, proposals out there in terms of finding this global variable. For example, um, subjective perception of effort. It's, it's one variable, it's a global variable. Uh, it's, it could be an interesting variable to map out uh, how the, 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 the individual is, is actually doing. But I, don't, I think that it, it's limited to, 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 to a few systems. And the other one is heart rate variability that we talked about. Uh, it's very good to index the cardiovascular system, but it's not maybe uh, the proper variable to index uh, the behavior of an athlete during competition during the season. So I, 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 I believe that we should be looking uh, the movement, the movement pattern, to try to find out the best control parameter, or the parameter, sorry, or the parameter that characterizes the state of the system. Uh, we're using today some uh, nonlinear techniques try to, trying to, to actually to characterize uh, these behaviors. Using, for example, entropy analysis, uh, the trend fluctuation analysis, um, in terms of the movement pattern and, and getting some kind of index. Or, for example, using um, the multi-scale, multi-scale entropy analysis, giving it some complexity index of the behavior. So variables that are global, okay, that characterizes the movement pattern in, in, in a more global way. And doing this every day, uh, in the beginning of the, the, the session, when athlete comes to the, to the club, and at the end of the section, when he leaves. And it takes about five minutes to do it, using uh, inertial sensors. So that, that's what we're doing now, is, is to test if these kind of variables uh, can actually tell me about the behavior of the system in, in, a, in a proper way. And then we're going to use this information to follow the athlete during the season and looking for those instabilities that may precede changes, critical changes that may point out to uh, an upcoming injury. So um, my, my intuition is that the movement will provide us with the proper variable that will tell a story about the state of the system. That's very interesting. And where can people, where's the best place for people to find you and, and I guess also follow you if they want to track that work? Obviously, it will be um, publishable work, but where's the best place for people to track you and find you along the way? Um, I'm um, at the Federal University of Minas Gerais in the graduate program of rehabilitation science. Um, in my papers, I have my email uh, and address. I, I'm all open to, to, to discussions and, and uh, if people want to, to learn a little bit more uh, about uh, those ideas, it, it's out there in terms of two main papers uh, that maybe we can add to, to some kind of note here, I don't know, if, if it's possible, in the description, something like that. But uh, I, we have um, a paper that just came out uh, in uh, sports medicine, um, that uh, describes a lot of what I talked about. And there's a British Journal of Sports Medicine in 2016 that also 
shows this uh, need to change in a different way and introduce complexity to sports. So basically, these two papers, they lay out the grounds. So we have many other papers that's related to, to more, more practical approaches, but in the philosophical arena, uh, these two can actually provide information about that. And uh, my, my email, if anyone wants to contact me, is S Fonseca, S F O N S E C A, um, at ufmg.br. Br. S Fonseca at ufmg.br. And are you on, are you on Twitter? Are you are you on the social media rounds at all? Um, I'm not a, a media guy, so I'm sorry. <laughs> I, 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 I should, I should, yeah, I should. That's my fault. Well, your your work's very complicated or or complex, I should say as well. Um, so <laughs> you know, finding time to uh, field Twitter questions is probably the least of your worries. But um, Sergio, I thank you for an incredibly stimulating uh, conversation. And there's far there's far smarter people, more qualified to ask you better questions than I am on today's topics. But Either way, I really enjoyed myself, and and I really thank you for coming on. It was a it was a great opportunity to chat to you. I, I thank you for the, the opportunity to talk to your listeners and bring a little bit of my ideas to uh, a larger audience. So I have actually to thank you. And your your questions were really well done, very smart. So you you should be happy as well. So it, it's you you did a very nice job in terms of uh, asking the proper questions. So. I congratulate you. Very good. That's that's reassuring and very kind. So um, no, but thank you. On a serious note, thank you very much. And 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 it was a really beneficial uh, conversation for me, at least, and, I, and no doubt the listeners as well. So yeah, thank you for your time. Thank you. I'd like to thank Sergio for coming on today's show. And regardless of which role or technical discipline you support athletes as, I can only imagine that has made you think, as it absolutely has done for me. This episode of the Informed Performance podcast has show notes, which you can find at informedperformance.com. We will leave some of the references advised by Sergio there for your convenience to look up. Please hit subscribe if you're a new listener and enjoyed the conversation and follow us on Instagram at informedperformance or on Twitter at informedpod. But for now, thanks for listening to the Informed Performance podcast. Tune in next week for more performance and sports medicine insights.